Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 31st of May, and I'm Govind Raj Ethiraj with the Core Report coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital and the most rocking city in the world. Here are our two quick reports and theme the hmm section and conversation of the day where we look at the 1 billion transaction opportunity for small payments or UPI. Our reports today, former Reserve Bank Governor Raghuram Rajan says the government manufacturing incentive scheme is a failure. India is set to see a billion UPI transactions a day in 3 years time. Valuations of tech startups continue to fall but that is the least of the problems and hmm the founder of Theranos was all set to start a 11 year jail term last night. This is a core report with Govindraj Ethiraj. Before I start off a quick thank you to so many of you who've sent me invaluable feedback on the core report directly and via many friends with both compliments and some critiques. Now the comments range from selection of content, the ask for more interviews and my delivery of it all. Thank you and I can assure you that I'm incorporating all of them as we go along. Keep them coming. Our stories. Raghuram Rajan says that the PLI scheme for manufacturing has not worked. India's mobile phone exports have zoomed but former Reserve Bank of India Governor Raghuram Rajan says the number masks the whole picture. He argued in a detailed LinkedIn post that the rise in exports has been accompanied by a rise in imports of inputs that go into making these devices. Over the longer term we have to be manufacturing components as well he says which of course is a bit of a holy grail right now towards which everyone wants to or seems to be heading. Rajan argues that if you correct for imports it's very hard to maintain that net exports have gone up. The net export figure of about 9.8 billion dollars coincided with higher imports of inputs including semiconductors, printed circuit boards, displays, cameras and batteries. The combined inbound shipments of these inputs reached 32 billion dollars in 2223 making India a net importer of components worth 21 billion dollars after adjusting for assembled phone exports. worth 11 billion dollars he says one key deficiency of the scheme is that the subsidy is paid only for finishing the phone in india not on how much value is added by manufacturing in india this matters he argues now there are many more aspects to what he argues which are fairly specific and we may not have the time to get into it but i did try and address some of these larger issues to neil shah vice president at counterpoint research a little earlier actually his firm studies this space and works with clients as well He gave me a breakdown. There are 1.25 billion smartphones being shipped globally, of which 16% were made in India. Breaking it down, 150 million phones were consumed in India itself, and around 90 million smartphones are being exported. There are two ways here. One is from the government side, regulation side. So, government has been putting regulations on import duties on different products. For example, earbuds, smartwatches, wearables, basically laptops. even as well so we'll see all these categories start taking the same path as smartphones from regulation push point of view second everyone knows regulation is coming so we are seeing already smartwatches and tws being manufactured the players like bot noise they are getting it manufactured locally right at the same time players like apple when apple starts manufacturing locally everyone wants to follow the trend right because apple will attract all the top supply chain players over here in india as well which can be leveraged by other players as well other brands So we'll see lot of different uh, segments coming up. Uh, not only here, but also we'll see network equipment here for base stations. We'll see for routers. 
Uh, we are seeing already set-top box and a lot of fiber FTTH routers being assembled in India already, right? They will have common processor coming from MediaTek, Qualcomm. They will have memories coming from Micron, Samsung. They will have resistors, capacitors coming from the same suppliers, right? So overall, I think 60 to 70% of the suppliers remain common across all electronics products. And we have started manufacturing smart TVs as well over here. So because of that push, initial push of smartphones, we have the entire ecosystem manufacturing a lot of different electronics products. So this is the first part, right, to your question. Second part is semiconductors. Government has also started semiconductor PLI scheme because they understand just manufacturing and assembling is not the solution. We should have fabs also here manufacturing chipsets. That completes the entire supply chain, right? So you don't have to source uh, chips from Taiwan or China or even Korea, right? So the next step which government is working on attracting all these different semiconductor fabs and companies, memory companies like Micron, Samsung, Toshiba, and so forth to manufacture here, at least start low-level manufacturing here of packaging the chips, uh, not if manufacturing the wafers out of the fabs. So we'll see that as the next big uh, movement. And that will complete the entire picture of manufacturing here and will lead to a very robust supply chain like even China does not have right now because China does not have a chipset manufacturing. Going forward, Shah believes that we have the capacity to make over 600 million phones in terms of capacity, including feature phones, of which we manufacture about 50 million, which is not usually counted. Now, that big number may not happen immediately or at all, perhaps, because it depends, as he says, on how manufacturers divide orders across the world and across countries. The important thing to note, however, that as you and I can see, the camera in your laptop is similar though not the same as the one in your phone or on your smart TV and some other appliance. The same goes for innards as well. Shah says that with companies like MediaTek, Qualcomm, supplying processors or memory chips from Samsung, we're looking at a common pool of electronics components driving manufacture of a whole bunch of things, including set-top boxes, routers, smart TVs, smartwatches, and so on. Now, all of this is not news to many, but it is a fact that as more devices get assembled, the overall ecosystem will grow. Rajan's note acknowledges that some part of the increased import bill could be electronics going into parts unknown, at least so far, like inside cars. Now, Apple is and will be the big brother and driver for further growth in itself as it starts pulling away suppliers and supply chains into its India orbit. If India starts making semiconductors and chipsets, then even better. Though that is a little while away. At this point, it is strong intent with some move towards early investments from companies like Vedanta, Foxconn. Finally, if we are exporting at a loss, there are still tens of thousands of new jobs and infrastructure investment in this space already. At this time, mostly in Tamil Nadu and Karnataka, with even Telangana now joining in. Just two weeks ago, Telangana said Foxconn will invest $500 million and create some 25,000 direct jobs with production targeted at the end of the year. It's more likely to be an assembly operation at this time. Columnist TN Nainan of Business Standard argued last month that if labor-intensive exports are to succeed in India, as they well might, it is more likely to be with the assembly of products where the labor cost is a small part of the product price and or where the domestic market provides an incentive for localizing, like with mobile phones. More importantly, he argues that the total payout under the PLI scheme or the Productivity Linked Incentive Scheme is under 200,000 crore rupees over five years, which is one-tenth of 1% of the expected GDP over that period. This, he says, is entirely affordable, presuming that PLI 
in his words, does not become a permanent boondoggle. On the other hand, if it succeeds, even not as wildly as the government might claim, it will trigger a hike in share of manufacturing in overall capital expenditure, achieve import substitution, boost exports, and more importantly, create jobs. The government has said 6 million jobs. We're surely heading in that direction. Digital payments see a new target. It's a billion. UPI transactions, the kind you and I do when we send money to each other via our phones, are likely to reach a billion a day in three years' time, accounting for 90% of retail digital payments in the country, a report from consulting from PwC released on Tuesday has said. The report is called the Indian Payments Handbook 2022-2027 to and is in its third edition. The report says that we could go from about 83 billion transactions last year, that is 22-23, to 379 billion transactions by 2026-27, or more than a billion a day. The report also said that credit cards would continue to grow at a healthy rate, with credit cards expected to surpass debit cards by next year. While credit cards are projected to grow at a compounded annual growth rate of 21%, debit cards will stagnate and start declining. Now, this is not surprising considering that debit cards are mostly used to withdraw cash or pay from the bank account, which will obviously get replaced by UPI, as you and I have already been doing. Incidentally, credit card businesses account for nearly 76% of overall card revenue last year, making it a lucrative business segment for banks, non-bank finance companies and fintech companies, the PwC report says. And finally, funding for the Indian fintech ecosystem is drying up falling to $5.5 billion for 2022, that's the calendar year, as compared to $10 billion in 2021, that's the previous calendar year, and is set to decrease further in 2023. Now, there are many reasons for this, some of which all of us know, which is more to do with the way things are moving globally. But the significant one is tightening regulations by the Reserve Bank. I caught up with the report's author Mihir Gandhi, partner and payments transformation leader at PwC India, and began by asking him what this figure of 1 billion transactions a day means in the context of overall financial system transaction and where it was going. We are talking about the billion transactions per day for UPI transactions, which is effectively we are saying it will become 4x of what it is today. So today we are at almost 80-90 billion transactions per year. And we are saying that it will almost be 380 billion transactions over a, a three to four year kind of period. So this is essentially due to multiple reasons in terms of, you know, UPI being used for different use cases. In terms of the P2P, obviously it's an established fact, but also the percent to merchant payments for low ticket transactions has picked up significantly in the last few years. It is also expected to pick up going forward. And with addition of new use cases like UPI on credit card, UPI on credit lines, and also UPI for international passengers or travelers coming into India, I think all that will open up the possibilities and help propel this 80 billion number to 370-380 billion is what we expect. From a value perspective, what we are saying is it's a tripling of the value. So today we are almost at... Uh, 140 trillion INR in terms of the UPI transactions. And we are expecting this to triple or more than triple to around 450 trillion INR in the next four to five years. So I think that's the broad expectations. Uh, UPI will still account for majority of the transactions. So today we are at 75 to 80 percent 
of all digital payment transactions in the country happen through UPI, the others being card, NEFT, NETC, etc. But in the future, we expect this number to go up to almost 90%, uh, thus dominating the digital payment space. Right. And when you talk about use cases, what is the single biggest use case you see in future and in terms of what's growing or will get there? So I think it is a combination of two broad areas. One is the person-to-person, which is if I want to transfer money to you uh, for whatever purpose, as a friend, family, or whatever reason, I pay it quickly through UPI, through a Google Pay or a Phone Pay or whatever is the available platform. And second broad area is the person-to-merchant. So person-to-merchant, if I want to buy uh, at a Kirana store, at a shop or whatever, then I, or even online, I can use my UPI quickly, I open the app, authenticate it and complete the transaction. So I think these are the two broad use cases. Within these use cases, as I mentioned, there are nuances like, uh, for example, um, international people coming in, you can, you know, allow them to use it. UPI Lite, which is a new kind of platform where I can store up to 2000 rupees in a specific wallet and then use that for different kinds of transactions. I think that is also a new feature that is coming in, which will help customers to not hit their bank account all the time, but use that 2000 rupees from that prepaid wallet kind of thing, which is there on the same UPI app of Google Pay or Phone Pay or Paytm that normally people use. So I think innovations are helping. And also, you know, if you look at a day for a person, right? So in the morning, if he has to buy milk, he has to buy bread, then he has to go and travel. He has to kind of buy food. He has to come back in the evening, you know, pay for any bills or something. So that entire journey can actually be covered through UPI. So the entire from morning to night, all the transactions can be covered today via UPI, either at a merchant location or a P2P kind of. Right. So the growth that you're seeing, is it because existing people will use UPI more or will more people come into the mix as we go along? I think it's a combination of both. Uh, Existing people will use UPI more for lower ticket transactions, for more frequent transactions, which is already happening. But the other expectation we have is the existing people will also use UPI for higher value transactions as we go along because UPI will be allowed to be linked to your credit card it's already started with Rupee. I think there is the possibility that instead of using a card or carrying a plastic, I can just carry my phone, link that to my credit card and then pay for buying, you know, higher value kind of transactions. So I think that is one. Second, newer population coming into the UPS segment will also happen. Uh, that will also have a decent contribution to the expected growth. Uh, and also international, if people travel, if people come from outside, I, that will also play a big role in this. Right. So now uh, going forward, now this is still a debit instrument, as in you are withdrawing from your bank. Now, credit is something that we all want or need and will need at various points of time. So how do you see that involving in the context of this? In a sense, what's your broader comment on the way consumers are going to behave when it comes to finance and financing in the next few years? So I think uh, UPI on debit, which is linked to a bank account, already exists and it accounts for almost 98 or 99% of the overall transaction volumes. UPI on prepaid has been opened up. So I have a prepaid card or a prepaid wallet. I can link my UPI ID to that as an underlying instrument. UPI on credit has also come out now with UPI and UPI credit allowed. What we believe is that UPI on bank account will still be the dominant mode going forward, though its share will reduce to maybe say 70, 60, 70%. And UPI on credit will pick up significantly for the population of customers, uh, I think around 40, 50 million people today have access for credit cards and say maybe another 50 to 70 million have access to credit lines, right? So outside on 100, 120 million 
people would have access to credit, formal credit in some sense. Today, and that number is growing. So if there is an opportunity to link UPI to a credit card or you link UPI to a credit product, a credit line, I think that is where the growth will come in. That is the power of what we expect. Right. And and last question, Mir, are you able to link this to overall economic growth or, I mean, it is a contributor for sure, but any way to quantify it for you today? Uh, I think it has just become uh, very easy uh, for the customer. The overall economy has been growing and the digital payments has contributed significantly to that. It will lead to the overall growth, but I think more importantly, the convenience factor for the customer in terms of how easy it is for a customer to make payments. I think that is really picked up and that will help in propelling the entire kind of transactions forward and defining new use cases for the country and for the customers. Tech stock valuations continue to fall. BlackRock, a small investor in Baiju's, the edtech company, has yet again cut the valuation of its holding in the company, this time to about $8.4 billion. BlackRock cut the value of Baiju share by 62% to around $8.4 billion in the quarter ending March this year from a year ago, it disclosed in a filing. In April 22, BlackRock had valued the company at $22 billion. Now, BlackRock owns less than 1% in this startup and TechCrunch, which reported this whole development, took pains to point out that other investors were holding and still valuing the company at a higher level. A few other things which are not reported here, of course, is the fact that Baiju now faces an enforcement direct investigation into its books, including raids that happened in the last week of April 2023. The ED was specifically looking at some 9,754 crores sent to various foreign jurisdictions between 2011 and 2023 of some 28,000 crore rupees it received in the same period it was reported. Now, the money, of course, could be going out for many quite valid reasons, but we do not know till the investigation is completed when it is completed. Baiju's also raised $250 million of debt funding from New York-based investment bank and stressed asset player Davidson Kempner Capital Management. Some of the reporting again seemed to suggest it was an equity raise, which it was not. The Adani and Vedanta Group were, among other companies, raising funds from similar, if not the same, stressed asset funds, including Oak Tree Capital, in the same period. Now, the point is not whether BlackRock will make or break Baiju's valuation. The point is that overall fund flow into startups continues to fall. With that, overall foreign direct investment numbers will also continue to fall. Gross gross foreign direct investment for the first time in a decade has already declined. It fell 16% to $71 billion last year from around $82 billion the previous year, which was pretty much a blowout year. There is nothing to suggest in the global macro environment that valuations could change upwards. Interest rates are high. Most capital is now going back, in a manner of speaking, to where it came from. And the startups here, many of them, are unlikely to deliver on those valuations or hopes for some time or perhaps never. If you wanted some good news, here it is. India's stock markets are still going strong, now having risen for the fourth consecutive day and more importantly, close to lifetime highs. The BSE Sensex was up 123 points to settle at 62,969 and the NSE Nifty was up 35 points to end at 18,634. Bank stocks, as I mentioned in my podcast Tuesday morning, are on fire. All this may not mean much for the investors of Baiju's, but if you are listening, it might be a good time to invest in the Indian secondary markets, albeit in a staggered way. And hmm, 
Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes, remember the company which claimed to make blood testing technology? Well, she was expected to report to prison last night to start a 11-year sentence for defrauding investors, reported the Wall Street Journal, which began, by the way, publishing findings about Theranos in 2015. Theranos was valued at $9 billion at its peak. Holmes has been convicted of wire fraud and has paid a $500,000 fine and banned from being an officer or director of any public company for 10 years. Her technology was basically a fraud and it never worked. Holmes, by the way, dropped out of Stanford University at 19 to start Theranos. She's now 39, has two children under two years. And in addition to her sentence, she and another Theranos executive, Ramesh Balwani, have been ordered to pay $452 million by way of restitution. While Theranos could be argued to be an exception, there have been several such spectacular blowouts in the last year, including the likes of FTX, one of the largest digital currency exchange platforms for cryptocurrencies. Let's hope more don't join that list, whether elsewhere in the world or even in India. That's it from me for today. Have a great day ahead and see you tomorrow morning. This was The Core Report with me, Govind Raj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.